Welcome to the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. Howdy folks. Thanks for joining us for part two of Abbey Gardner and the Spirit Lake Massacre. If you've not listened to part one, now's a good time to stop, go back an episode and catch up. Yeah. It's kind of makes sense to do so. Uh, this episode has a vast number of Native American names that are not easy for our tongues to pronounce. So, Mainly me. <laughs> <laughs> so we apologize in advance for any incorrect pronunciations. We will surely do our best here. Yeah. So now that we talked about the terrible crime. Part one. Yep. Let's talk about the tribe that committed it and who was in charge. Ink Paduta was born in either 1805 or 1797. Couldn't find an exact truth date. We've got an eight-year variation. (laughs) He was born near Cannon River, Minnesota. He was raised in the smallest of four eastern Sioux Dakota tribes called the Wapakuti. Ink Paduta was described as six feet tall with smallpox scars all over his body. Dasagi was the leader of his tribe, and in 1815, he worked with the United States government to mediate a peace treaty between his tribe and the Sac and Fox tribe. On November 15, 1827, the Sac and Fox tribe attacked the Wapakuti, killing many of the people, including Ink Paduta's mother. So Wam Desapia, Ink Paduta's father, blamed Tasagi for his wife's death, believing that if he had not signed the peace treaty, this would not have happened. Tensions between the tribes got worse as more white settlers began moving into their hunting area. The settlers would help out the Wapakuti tribe by trading supplies for furs. Limited hunting spots for fur forced the Wapakuti tribe to hunt in the Fox and Sac region. Wanda Sebi believed the settlers wished to push us into the jaws of our enemies and on dangerous ground to get skins to pay our credit. In the mid-1830s, Wamda Seppi broke away from Tasagi and formed his own village, making himself head chief. Wamda Seppi moved his 60 to 100 followers to Blue Earth River. His tribe would later be known as the Red Top Band of the Wapakuti. In 1839, Tasagi was killed. Ink Paduta was implicated on his death. In 1842, the Wapakutis surrendered their land in Iowa, allowing the Fox and Sac tribe to move further west. The Red Top Band relocated to Vermilion River in South Dakota, where they lived with the Yanktons and Secessions. In 1846, it was reported by a visitor to the Red Top Band that Wemdesapi had passed away from illness. Sinto Miniduta, meaning all over red, was the new head chief, and Ink Paduta, meaning Scarlet Point, was the subchief. Later, the Red Top Band was divided into four smaller groups, with Ink Paduta becoming a chief in his own right. Over time, his tribe became known as Vagabonds and was no longer accepted by other tribes. They were known to rob from other tribes and even kill them if they were not given what they wanted. In August of 1851, a treaty between the U.S. government and the Mdewakantan and the Wapakuti was negotiated. The treaty stipulated that the Mdawakantan and the Wapakuti tribes were to receive $1,410,000 in return for relocating to the Lower Sioux Agency on the Minnesota River. That $1.4 million would translate to about $54.25 million today. It's a good chunk of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, this treaty gave the southern Minnesota up to the whites. Ink Paduta's tribe was not included, therefore they could not receive any money from the government. 
It is still debated to this day as to the cause of the Spirit Lake Massacre. Some say it started back in 1854 when Henry Lott, who was a whiskey trader and a horse thief, and his son killed Inkpaduta's brother, Sinto Miniduta, his mother, his two wives, and two of his four children. Inkpaduta found their bodies two weeks later and went to the nearby town of Homer to ask for help in capturing and punishing Henry Lott. However, he was too late. Lott had fled the area and was indicted in absentia. The prosecuting attorney, Granville Berkeley, took Sinto Minuduta's head and skewered it on a pole over his house in a gross act of contempt. Lot was never found and nothing was done to try and capture him. Yeah, this would probably be pretty upsetting because here's Ink Paduta trying to do what the white settlers are wanting them to do. Mm -hmm. And then they won't help him capture this guy. Yeah, instead of starting off on the warpath, he went and asked for help and let's capture and prosecute this guy. Yeah. And they said, no, nah, nah, we're not interested. Yep. Well, the other thought of what caused Ink Paduta to commit this terrible crime was in the winter of 1856, the tribe was camping at Loon Lake. A hunter from the Wapakuti tribe was out hunting elk and was attacked by a dog. The hunter shot and killed the dog. And then the owner was a white man. This upset him to the point that he beat the native senseless. When the native came to, he claimed that he talked with the great spirit and was told the white people who were responsible for all the Indians' sufferings must be destroyed. Thus begins a warpath. <laughs> yep. Well, the Wapakuti tribe then stole cattle, hay, and corn from nearby settlers. Captain Seth Smith and 20 armed white men rode out to where the tribe was camping and demanded the natives give them all their firearms. Ink Patuta told them if they took their guns from them, they would not be able to hunt and would starve. Smith did not care and took all their weapons. The plan was to come back the next day and give them back their guns and then force them from the area. The next day, the white men returned to find the tribe had already left. After leaving the area, Ink Paduta's grandson died from exposure and starvation. That the statement of that the plan was to give them back their weapons, mm -hmm. it almost kind of makes me wonder if that was a lie and they came up with it when they're like, well, uh, we were actually going to give them back, but they were already gone. Yeah, like teenagers. I was going to give it back, I swear. Yeah, that's kind of the way I made it processed it in my know. head. Yeah, I'm like, uh, I feel like they were lying, but okay. We'll go with that, you know? <laughs> or maybe they took him and actually had that intent and said, well, we're going to take him, teach him a lesson. We'll give him back and send him on their way. Mm -hmm. Who knows? But Yeah. Um, well, Ink Paduta and his warriors seeking revenge began plundering and raiding the white settlers. The attack started in February 1857 at Lost Island Lake. One of the warriors went to the cabin of Mr. Gillette to try and steal food, weapons, and livestock. Mr. Gillette shot and killed the man. The tribe then fled to Little Sioux River where they attacked Ambrose S. Meade's house. Mr. Meade was gone when everything happened. They killed all of his cattle, knocked down his wife and Mr. E. Taylor. They then pushed Mr. Taylor's son into the fireplace, badly burning his leg. The warriors then attempted to capture his daughter Emma, who was just 10 years old. Emma resisted and fought to get away. One of the warriors then grabbed a stick and beat her. They then took her older sister, Hattie, who was 17 years old. They also took Miss Taylor with them. The two women went with the tribe's camp, where they spent only one night with them before they were released to go back home. The tribe then began making their move towards Spirit Lake. 
When they reached the area, they were so upset to see that white settlers were living in what they considered a sacred dwelling place for their gods. The band of 14 warriors had killed 35 to 40 settlers in total and captured four young women. After Abby was released, Ink Paduta and his tribe continued to evade capture. The U.S. government withheld annuity payments for the Dakotas until Ink Paduta was arrested or killed. Due to the government not making payments, it was the primary motive for the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862. More than 600 white settlers were killed at New Ulm and about 300 were captured. Yeah, I didn't get into it, but it kind of makes me wonder what the government did to like get those 300 people back. Mm-hmm. And eventually they did start making the payments again. Right. You kind of wonder what the government thought of like, oh, this was probably a bad choice to mm-hmm. withhold these payments right. for one person, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, Inkpaduta and his tribe continued to live a life on the run, moving from one area to another, never really truly settling down. By 1876, Inkpaduta was living in Sitting Bull's village at Little Bighorn. On June 25th, the 7th Cavalry Regiment, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer, attacked Sitting Bull's village. Uh, we're not going to get into the battle right now because we want to pay the area a visit in the future and then do an episode on it. But it is reported that Ink Paduta's son sounds the ground as he walks, reportedly killed Custer. It's quite the name. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm hey. sure he had a, that was the white translation of his name. It was a little easier for them to say, but (laughs) hey, sounds the ground as he walks. Come here. I want to talk to you. (laughs) A little tough. Yeah. So they said that he killed his son, but then it was also, I read other accounts that they don't really actually know who killed him. Right. So thought that was still kind of fun though. Uh, Further records claim that Ink Paduta was seen riding Custard's horse. Ink Paduta was never captured or punished for his crime at Spirit Lake. And he eventually made his way to Canada, where he passed away in either 1879 or 1881. We've seen both dates again, like his birthday. We don't really know. It's closer than his birthday gap. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, now that we know about the person responsible for the crimes at Spirit Lake, let's end this on a happier note by telling you what happened to Abby after she was freed. When we left 13-year-old Abby, she was just reunited with her sister Eliza in Hampton. Abby was sure to deliver Elizabeth Thatcher's message to her family when she arrived in Hampton as well. If you recall from the last episode, uh, Elizabeth had asked that if she didn't make it, tell her family she was trying her best to return for her family's sake. Uh, It was during her time in Hampton that she met the cousin of Elizabeth, Casville Sharp. The two of them started spending some time together, and on August 16, 1857, at the age of 14, Abby was married to Casville, who was 18 at the time. About a year and a half later, Abby and her husband returned to her parents' cabin in Spirit Lake. They were surprised to find that only a few months after her capture, J.S. Prescott and W.B. Brown arrived in the area and J.S. Prescott was now living in her father's house. Prescott reimbursed Abby a small percentage of what the property was worth, but her main goal in going to the area was to pay respect to the people who had lost their lives. When the cavalry came to Spirit Lake to help the settlers, it was too late. Everyone was either dead or captured. They instead turned the rescue mission into a burial mission. The men set about burying everyone they found by the house they were killed in, and Abby's family was laid to rest close by their house. 
it was kind of like saddening to read the accounts of the soldiers in the book because they would talk about like going into a house and then finding the scene, the murder scene. I'm sure. And it's in the middle of winter, you know, so they're trying to bury these people in frozen ground. And everything's pretty well preserved at that point, too. So you'd yeah. see the whole massacre as it was laid out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's horrible. Well, after her visit, the two of them returned home to Bremer County. In 1859, the couple welcomed their first child, Albert. He was named after Abby's sister, Mary's son. While living in Grundy County, Missouri, the family's house caught on fire. I know children don't leave home with a candle lit. <laughs> uh, they were away when it happened, and therefore they lost everything, including the war bonnet Abby was given that we talked about in the previous episode. Yeah, and she said she was just devastated by it. I mean, it's I'm something sure. you could never just go and buy another one. Yeah, yep, irreplaceable. Mm -hmm. Well, in 1862, they had a second son named Alan. In 1870, while living in Butler County, their house caught on fire again. And like last time, they were not home and lost everything, including an early manuscript Abby had been working on. In 1871, the couple had another child. Her name was Minnie, but she only lived for about 18 months before she passed away. Sometime in the late 1870s, Abby's marriage failed. She and her son Alan traveled to New York to visit the area that Abby had grown up in before the family had moved west. Yeah, I couldn't find like the exact divorce date or anything. Mm -hmm. And I was actually telling you about this where I found her husband's uh, where he's buried. Mm -hmm. And they had his obituary on the headstone, like linked into the headstone website. Mm -hmm. And it talked about how he was a, a widower. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm like, what? She's not dead when they divorced. You know, he was never a widower. Yeah. yeah we never did figure that out if it was another wife that died or mm -hmm. how he became a widower. But. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, on December 10th, 1883, Abby returned to Spirit Lake. She started giving speeches about her captivity in order to make money. She's about 40 years old now at this point. While giving speeches, she was also working on her book, The Spirit Lake Massacre and the Captivity of Abby Gardner. Her book was published in 1885, and she used the money from the book sales to purchase her family's Spirit Lake home in 1891. She worked hard to restore the house to what it once was by adding a stone foundation and replastering between the logs. She then worked on filling the house with paintings and relics. She opened it up to the public, charging 25 cents for adults and 10 cents for kids. And that, that today is around $8 for adults and just over $3 for kids. Still a pretty fair price to pay to go see something like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, during the winter of 1893 to 94, Abby lobbied to have the state build a monument in memory of the pioneers who were brave enough to settle the area and were viciously murdered. In March of 1894, Abby got word that Iowa was putting aside five grand to build the monument. That's just over 172000 today. The monument is 55 feet high. It's enormous. It was mm -hmm. hard to get some pictures of this one. Yeah. Uh, the base is 14 by 14 foot. Each side of the monument has something different on it. The front of the monument has a bronze plaque that has the names of everyone murdered by Inkpadu's warriors. The other side has a dedication plaque. Another side has the names of all the men that traveled to the area to help rescue the settlers. And last, there is a memoranda placed giving the names of all the settlers that were able to escape the attacks in Springfield. The monument was placed close to Abby's cabin. Yeah, it's all right there in walking distance. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you could see one from the other. Mm-hmm. The next thing Iowa did to pay respect to the people murdered was to pay to have their bodies dug up and placed in a more fitting location. Of the 35 people killed, only 16 bodies were found. They were all laid to rest in one grave on the east side of the monument. So Abby's family remains in their original grave. They were placed side by side just a short distance east of the monument. Abby writes in her memoir, Never have I recovered from the injuries inflicted upon me while captive among the Indians. She talks about how she would spend months in her room, unable to move, and as she aged, it became harder and harder for her to do the day-to-day functions. In 1899, Abby received some terrible news when she was told her oldest son, Albert, had passed away at the age of either 39 or 40. He was a member of the Order of Railway Conductors of America. I'm guessing that's like a fraternal organization. I think everything was a fraternal organization back then. Okay. Uh, Well, while he was working in British Columbia, he got sick. His brethren in the group did everything they could to help him live, but after suffering for 24 hours, he passed away. They escorted his remains to Abby's cabin, where he was laid to rest with Abby's family in the family cemetery. In 1919, Alan Sharp, Abby's last living child, passed away at the age of 56. We couldn't find any information about his death. However, his remains made it back to be placed in the family plot. In November 1920, Her sister Eliza passed away at the age of 81. She was laid to rest in Iowa Veterans Home Cemetery. Abby was now the last living Gardner family member. She was divorced and had no living children. On January 17, 1921, at the age of 77 or 78, Abby passed away in Colfax, Iowa. Her body was brought back to be placed next to her family. Her headstone is a granite bench, and the back of it has an inscription that reads, Abigail Gardner Sharp, orphaned and enslaved by hostile Sioux. She lived to embrace in Christian benevolence, the American Indian, and all mankind. So Abby started her book saying, quote, I have amid physical ills which have disqualified me for the active pursuit of life devoted two years of painful labor to indicting the bitter reminiscence and gathering the facts, dates, and events recorded in this volume. She continues on saying, Being fully conscious of my inability to execute to the satisfaction of the public a task so responsible, I would have been glad for the sake of history to impart my knowledge of the bloody drama to one whose gifted pen would have been more worthy of the subject. But by sad misfortune, which has fallen my captivity, the duty has fallen upon me. Abby may have been suffering from what we know today as PTSD. Mm-hmm. I'm certain of it. Yeah. <laughs> really, it's a lot to go through, especially as an early teen. Yeah, I mean, she was witnessed all these horrible murders, was, you know, captured by these guys, mm-hmm. taken to areas she's never been, wasn't ever really fed a decent meal, treated terribly. I can only imagine what she went through. Um, yeah, so she talks about the physical ailments she was suffering, but surely she was mentally suffering as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we were on a big trip through the Midwest, and on our way home, we were driving along the Iowa border. We figured since we were so close to another state we had not yet visited that we should make a detour and drive through Iowa a bit. We tend to do that. We make our trips a lot longer than they than Google Maps would normally make them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, let's go here. Let's see this. Yeah. 
Well, as we were crossing the state line, we started looking up things to see in the area and Abby's cabin popped up. We figured we should stop and take a look around. Plus, we saw there was a family cemetery close by. We had no idea what the Spirit Lake Massacre was or what to even expect. The area is beautiful and it was full of people in boats on the water. We found a place to park and wandered up to the area. The cabin and cemetery are not far from the lake shore, and it's situated in a neighborhood. All the original cabins were torn down and, you know, more modern houses were built. So that's when Abby bought that was to protect the cabin from being torn down. Mm -hmm. But her family actually owned like a lot of the land around it that there's now houses on. Mm -hmm. Prime real estate. They're not going to let it all go. Yeah. I mean, you're within walking distance to the lake from the cabin. Mm -hmm. The big lake, too. Mm-hmm. Well, when we embarked on our adventure, the country was still in the middle of COVID. So unfortunately, the cabin was closed and we weren't able to go inside, which is a damn shame because we've since found out that inside the cabin, there are paintings done by Abby. Uh, one of the paintings is of a drowning white woman being hit with sticks as she floats to the shore. Another is a group of Dakota men sitting in a circle smoking a pipe. In front of a teepee in the distance is a small white gal with blonde hair wrapped in blankets. And the last one is a cabin on fire while natives' teepees are set up on the side and they're dancing around celebrating. So images that just stuck with her all her life. Yeah. Yep. Um, I'm so thankful that we stopped to see the cabin, the monument, and the resting place of Abby and her family. As Abby put on one of her paintings, Read Your History. It made me realize this is kind of why we do the podcast is to keep history alive, right? Mm -hmm. Abby died having forgiven Ink Paduda and what he did to her family. And that would have been a very difficult thing to do. I don't know if I could have done that. Yeah, that'd be a tough one. Uh-huh. If you guys ever get the chance to read the book, The Spirit Lake Massacre and the Captivity of Abby Gardner, written by Abby herself, which is the book that I used for the research of this episode... Um, Do be prepared to get a little confused at times. I had to reread it a couple times. Her story kind of jumps around a bit, but there's also accounts in there uh, from several people who were involved in the rescue attempts, as well as accounts given by people involved in helping Abby reach freedom. There's accounts from the soldiers that were there trying to help people and ended up having to bury him, like I talked about. There's a lot in there. It's not just Abby's story. It's everybody involved in it. So. Right. So the massacre and monument site are in a town now called Arnold's Park in Iowa. If you're in the area, it's about 100 miles east of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It's about 190 miles southwest of Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's closer to Sioux Falls, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the site's tucked in between east and west Okaboji Lake, just off of State Route 71. So if you were going from anywhere in Minnesota across the bottom part to Sioux Falls, you would drop south there on 71. Okay. I don't remember what we took. We were on like a county road and we're like, well, we can take this little road here. Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) We were all over the place. Yeah. We don't drive in straight lines. No. (laughs) We're like, well, it's only like 10 miles down. Let's go here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, there's also a Camp Boji, an RV park in the area, a couple other campgrounds, plenty of restaurants there, taverns, and a few hotels in the area as well. If you want to hang out a bit longer and spend time 
it's a very big summer vacation area. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. I'm sure you can get a beer and watch the boats on the water if mm-hmm. you want. There's probably places to rent paddle boards and all kinds of stuff if you're interested in that. So yeah. it's gorgeous there. Yeah. It'd be worth a hangout spot for a night for mm-hmm. sure. All righty. Well, there you have it, folks. That's the conclusion of our two-part episode about Abbey Gardner and the Spirit Lake Massacre. Yeah. So are you uh, going to send us off with one of your dad jokes again? I am. Are you oh, so ready? <laughs> <laughs> so ready. So I didn't tell you before, but I did have a job at the bank. And I actually got fired on my first day because a woman asked me to check her balance and I pushed her over. (laughs) (laughs) It's not true, but it's a funny joke. (laughs) Wow. It's good, huh? (laughs) That's exactly what I was thinking. Like, man, that was good. It was a good joke. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Try to turn it into a story for you. Yeah, you nailed it. <laughs> Even Marley's still sleeping. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thank you all so much for joining us again and supporting the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. Uh, if you want to stay up to date with us, we're most active on the Instagram. At Rebel at Large. We post photos of our adventures on our website. RebelAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to our new merch store. Patreon, if you want to help put fuel in our tanks for our adventures. Mm -hmm. And email, if you want to get in touch with us, as well as links to our other social deals. If you want to help Gypsy with some jokes, by all means. (laughs) Also, we've never talked about this, but at the end of the episode, you put the outtakes on them sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure this one is going to have some good ones, (laughs) because I was struggling with the names. (laughs) Yeah, listen through the music. They're they're usually, I don't know how funny it is. Maybe funnier than the dad jokes, but. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you all again. Uh, We'll talk to you here next week uh, with our regularly scheduled episode. Safe travels. We'll see you all down the road. The red top band of the Wa- Wapakuti. Should I read that over? Yeah. In 1839, Tasigi. Did I say it right? No. Say it again? Tasagi. Tasagi. In 1839, Tasagi was killed and Impakuti. Sorry, I'm, I'm, we're almost through this. I'm so sorry. Start that over. Yeah. <laughs> in South Dakota, where they lived with the Yanktons and Secestans. Did I say that right? No. But it kind of, you, you, did you say I did it right? Mm-hmm, good job. <laughs>